0: Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom, where I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host. Do I sound different to you? Well, I should. I'm deep in the Pennsylvania mountains on the Kahana Trail. Kahana. That's a mouthful. On a wilderness backpacking trip. Naturally, I have no quality microphone with me. Not any other electronics, except for my iPhone. So, I'm coming to you right now from my iPhone next to a gurgling crick. It's very loud. I'm having to talk really loud right now to get my voice recorded clearly. And I'm sitting right next to a fire. It's about midnight on, let's see, what day is this? I think it's Friday. All right, Friday, technically Saturday. So I'm at this uh, pristine spot down in this holler next to a creek, and uh, there was a thunderstorm earlier. So I had to pitch my tent real quick, hop in the tent, and uh, endure that. I'm kind of afraid of lightning, so lightning is not my friend, but uh, got through it, and now I'm sitting next to a fire. There have been tremendous thunderstorms all around, every day. And uh, only today did it finally catch up to me. I covered 10 miles in the blazing sun on the first day, and there was a man and his wife that I kept hopscotching with, their first time doing anything like this. And uh, I felt an obligation to keep stopping and giving them advice. They were probably thinking, will this fella leave us alone? We just want to find a place, pitch our tent, and pretend we're dating all over again. They were an above-average middle-aged couple, which means that they probably had 10 years on me. And that's the irony of aging, you know? You're always comparing yourself to where other people are in their lives, to where you currently are, or where you once were. I realize that the audio quality is probably not great here. It's not going to go on forever. Hang in there. I'm going to get to a good microphone soon. uh, But I thought that a lot of my listeners would enjoy hearing the sounds of camp. Deep, deep, deep in the mountains. Right now I'm looking up at stars, the fire, and of course the sound of the creek behind me. Making all that gurgling noise. Ten years ago... I was backpacking the Maryland portion of the infamous Appalachian Trail. This was in a November, and uh, temperatures were at 8 degrees. That was the high, 8 degrees Fahrenheit. And that was at the foot of the mountains. So if you can imagine, when I got to the top of the mountains, and that's what the AT, that's what everybody calls the Appalachian Trail, That's what the AT does when it goes through Maryland. It goes up to the peak of a mountain, and then you're on a mountain range at the top forever and ever. It starts at Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, and then crosses into Maryland, and then just follows the tippy tops of that mountain range. So it was much more frigid at the peak of the mountain range than at the bottom and our water bottles kept freezing up on us. And when I say that, I mean within minutes, you would fill your water bottle with water, stick it in your pack, and within 10, 15 minutes, you'd get it out to get a drink, and it would already be frozen over. It was very, very uh, extreme, I'd say. At night, our boots would freeze up, and we'd try to thaw them out next to our fire, but the soles would melt. It was a total nightmare. The real purpose of this story is to tell you that on the first night, two other guys come into our camp. They were pushing mid-60s and early 70s. I'll never forget this. The next day, we got up, all of us. We all had breakfast together, and then we were all set at about the same time to hit the trail. Well, I was in my 30s, and these fellas just absolutely took off and left us behind. We we had no hope of catching up to them. So not only did these old guys endure the freezing, the same freezing temperatures that we endured, but they ended up having much more endurance than we had. I often think about them as an example of why there is no good reason for me not to still be doing this sort of thing in my 60s and 70s. I'm 44 now. I just turned 44 this summer. And it's an age that I, of course, always knew was coming. But did I ever really believe that it was actually going to happen to me? (laughs) No, of course I didn't. All right, so now, I want to tell you the story of the lawn chair pilot. I'll say that again. The story of the lawn chair pilot. Have you heard of him? This is a true story, so buckle in. The lawn chair pilot was a man named Larry. Larry. If I remember that correctly, and he was a truck driver. He drove a big rig for a living. His dreams as a young man were to be an esteemed airline pilot, much like myself. Unfortunately, less than perfect eyesight and other events in his life conspired against him, and he never got to be a pilot. So, he found himself in midlife, feeling washed up, and as if his best were all behind him. He lived in Los Angeles, California, and ironically enough, his house sat right under the entry and exit corridor of LAX, and for those who don't know, LAX is the Los Angeles International Airport And from his back porch, he would sit out in his cheap lawn chair, drinking cheap beer, looking up at these planes coming and going from Los Angeles. And he would dream. He'd dream about the pilots, the life that they were living, and the life that he had hoped for himself, daydreaming about what might have been, all while drinking his cheap beer in his cheap lawn chair. Is this the end of the story? Oh, (laughs) you know it's not. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pick this story back up once I'm out of the woods. I have a proper microphone in front of my face. I've got a quiet environment so that you can really focus on this story and get the best out of it. I survived thunderstorms, lightning, Bigfoot monsters, sweltering heat, and humidity. Oh my good dear Lord, the humidity. Timber rattlesnakes, and worst of all, mediocre meals. But what I'm not gonna do is leave you hanging anymore. We can talk about all that stuff later. For now, I know you're wondering about Larry, the lawn chair pilot, and what he has to do with emotional health and Borderline Personality Disorder in particular. So let's pick up where we left off, over 400 miles away, next to that crackling fire and gurgling crick underneath those stars, and let's rejoin Larry Walters back in 1982, there on his back porch, sitting in his cheap lawn chair, drinking his cheap beer, and watching the planes come in and out Of Los Angeles over top of his home. For 20 years, Larry Walters had been doing this, and he was putting the final touches on a dream. And his dream was this to tie some weather balloons to this cheap lawn chair right here that he was sitting in, and then go floating peacefully away into the sky over Los Angeles. Do you know that's exactly what Larry Walters did? He tied his lawn chair to the bumper of his truck so it wouldn't fly away before he was ready, and then he hooked up a cluster of weather balloons to the chair. He grabbed some beer, a walkie-talkie radio, one for himself and the other for his girlfriend. He strapped on a parachute, then grabbed a BB pellet gun, so that he could start shooting at the balloons whenever he was ready to come down. Then he sat in the lawn chair and got comfortable before either he or his girlfriend was totally prepared. The tethers holding Larry to earth snapped, and Larry did not float peacefully over Los Angeles. No, what he did instead was to shoot like a rocket up to 16,000 feet. 16,000 feet. To give you some context for that, the highest elevation in the White Mountains of New England, the highest elevation, is 6,200 feet. The elevation of Mount Katahdin in Maine where the Appalachian Trail ends is only 5,200 feet. Mount Lyle in Yosemite National Park in California tops out at 13,000 feet. Larry Walters soared like an arrow shot straight into the sky to 16,000 feet. Mount Everest tops out at 29,000 feet, so now we've got a pretty good picture in our heads, don't we, of how high above Earth Larry Walters went in his chair. He rose at a rate of 1,000 feet per minute. Then the wind took Larry and carried him unexpectedly directly into the airspace of LAX. Los Angeles International Airspace. Do you know what happened? Pilots began calling the control tower and saying that they had just seen a man in a lawn chair up there drinking beer and holding a gun. (laughs) Now, at this point, there is the risk of you thinking that I'm making all this up, but I'm not. After this show, you're going to want to go look up Larry Walters, lawn chair pilot, on Google, and uh, even on YouTube, where you'll be able to listen to the radio communications between him and his hysterical girlfriend, as well as his direct communications with the control tower of LAX. That conversation's really funny because once Larry makes contact with the control tower, they assume that he's a small Piper plane or some other small aircraft And he repeatedly has to keep trying to convince them that he is, in fact, a guy up above them floating around in a lawn chair. Now, is there ever just one thing we can learn from such incredible true stories like this? No, of course not. It's layered, isn't it? It's complex. I'd like you to listen now to Larry Walters himself talking to David Letterman on his late-night show back in 1982.
1: Hi there, welcome back to the show. We have a, uh, we have a uh, fine uh, program. Uh, last week, a man from Southern California grabbed the attention of the world when he fulfilled a dream he had had for 20 years, a dream of soaring three miles straight up in the air, sitting in a lawn chair. This is a phenomenal thing. Where did you get the idea to do this? Uh, when did it hit you? You said it was a 20-year dream? Yes, sir. It uh, hit me when I was a uh, young boy, about 13 years old. I was in an army, navy surplus store, saw so, uh, a weather balloon dangling from the ceiling, and I just got the idea uh, uh, to put uh, to inflate these balloons. And I figured if I had enough of them, it'd lift me. Uh-huh. The idea was just you know, the float. Yeah. When you say you hook balloons to a lawn chair, okay. it doesn't sound you know like. <laughs> First of all, like Neil Armstrong probably wouldn't be involved there. The um, thing is. Now, is yeah. it, Is it expensive to get that much helium? Uh, Well, like I say, uh, Carol, she financed it. She bought all the gas and... uh, (laughs) Anyway, the gas and the balloons uh, came to Uh $3,000, and she bought my parachute for me. Thank God bless her. And uh, that was another $800. I read a figure this afternoon that said the whole project cost around $15,000. That is correct, because we were going to originally go from the Mojave Desert. Mm -hmm. And it was Carol's idea to uh, launch from her backyard. (laughs) Uh, um, only because there was a hospital about a half mile down the road really yes sir
0: inspiring ain't it in fact larry walters become a hero to people and to this day 37 years later there continue to be imitators I can't remember exactly where it was the first time I heard Larry Walter's story. If I'm not mistaken, I believe it was in one of those books I recommended to you in the previous episode of this podcast. I strongly suspect that it was in the book Uh Ut-O by Robert Falgum, one of my favorite books, but I could be totally wrong about that. Regardless, somewhere I read it and it's always stuck with me. And it seems to me the angle that most people seem to take with this story is an inspirational interpretation. And no doubt about it, it is definitely inspirational in a lot of ways. I could use it to say to you, for example, don't let anybody tell you what you can't accomplish. And I would be right for telling you this because it's true. And Larry Walter's example is an inspiration in that regard. He got an idea, formulated a concrete way to make it a reality, and he followed through. Or what I could do is point out the people laughing at him in David Letterman's crowd. (laughs) They see him as a joke. They are effectively, with their laughter, telling him right to his face, that they think he's a big joke. But this doesn't seem to bother Larry too awful much. So we could use his example to say, you know what? It don't matter if your efforts toward recovery make sense to anybody else or if other people approve of the steps you are taking or not. It only matters that you have the clarity to know that it's what you've got to do for yourself. And this also would be true. But today, I'm going to present Larry Walter's story to you from an angle that I doubt you will ever hear from anywhere else. It involves the saddest part of Larry Walter's incredible adventure. Immediately after his flight in his lawn chair, the fulfillment of a 20-year dream. Imagine countless hours sitting in that chair on That back porch, drinking cheap beer and watching the planes come and go. And now he has seen his dream through. This is what Larry had to say about what the experience had done for him,
1: and I accomplished my dream. Yeah. Now, how does that feel, having succeeded in achieving what you always I, wanted I to do? Achieve I achieved inner peace. I've achieved
0: inner peace within myself. Really? <laughs> really? I'm a happier person today.
1: Well, that's good. Uh, a happier person for it. This is a fascinating story, Larry, and and I'm grateful that you could come all the way to New York City and share it with us. Well, I thank you for inviting me, sir. Anytime. If you want to do something else, let us know, sir. <laughs> right. Thank you, Larry Walters, ladies and gentlemen. we we'll be right back. Did you hear what he said?
0: The experience of living out his dream, of accomplishing something, his dream, had brought him inner peace, according to him.
1: Yeah. Now, how does that feel, having succeeded in achieving what you all wanted? I, want I, I
0: achieved inner peace. I've achieved inner peace within <laughs> myself. Really, <laughs> really. I'm a
1: happier person today. Well, that's good. Okay. Uh, I have now, here's
0: where I have a problem with this. Let me ask you. Where does true inner contentment come from? Let's ask the question this way Can inner contentment come from external things? Remember, near the root of most of your problems as a person who is emotionally unhealthy or living with borderline personality disorder, what do we find? We find that your distorted understanding of the true nature of self and of feelings and of life makes it so that you are unable to generate your own sense of value or worth or contentment from within. You are unable to generate that for yourself from within. And what is the result of not being able to generate your own inner sense of value for yourself from within? Isn't it that you rely perpetually on external sources of worth as a way to not feel empty? What are achievements? Would you say that achievements are inner sources of worth? Or external sources of worth? Well, achievements are external sources of validation and worth, aren't they? After all, if you don't achieve the thing, then you don't get to feel the worth, do you? An inner sense of worth, on the other hand, is simply inherent. Healthy people are able to generate it from nothing right from within themselves it's not dependent on anything so it's not dependent on an accomplishment or on a job or on who you marry or on who you've slept with or on what car you drive it's not dependent on anything any external factor now surely you have met these people who never seem to have much, who are poorer than you, less attractive than you, who drive a car that you would be embarrassed to drive. And from your point of view, they don't seem to have much going for them at all. And you can't bear to even imagine ever having to switch places with them socially, or economically, or in any other way. And yet, and yet... They always seem to be genuinely happy. Have you ever met anybody like this? Surely you have. What a truly beautiful thing. In most cases, do you know why they are that way? Well, I'm here to tell you that it can only be because they are emotionally healthy. You see, They're generating their contentment from within. They themselves are generating their own contentment from within. And what happens when you're able to generate your contentment from within? What happens is that your contentment is not dependent on anything outside of you. This is what genuine contentment is. It's you generating it yourself within yourself from nothing, from nothing except for an accurate perspective of the inherent value of your feelings and of you yourself as a person. Therefore, it isn't dependent on anything at all, not your job, not your car, not the trophy husband or wife, not whether you are in a relationship or not. I feel like I need to highlight that. Not any external thing. No, all of that stuff is simply cherries on top of an already perfect cake. So, did Larry Walter's accomplishment truly bring him authentic inner peace and authentic contentment.
1: Yeah. Now, how does that feel, having succeeded in achieving what you all wanted I, I to do? I have
0: achieved inner peace. I've achieved inner
1: peace. myself. <laughs> really? really? I'm a happier person today.
0: Well, On good. October 6, uh, 1993, at the age of 44, ten years after the fulfillment of the dream that supposedly brought him inner contentment, Larry Walters took a hike in Los Angeles National Forest, and he never came back. He committed suicide out there that day by shooting himself in the heart. Do you see the problem with hinging our value and contentment on external things, no matter what external thing it might be? I mean, we could right now list a hundred million external things that give people a false and fleeting sense of value and contentment. Can you see the problem of tying our identity into external things such as whether or not we have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a wife or a husband? Or how about the folly of hinging our recovery from borderline personality disorder on external things such as when our truest and most powerful motivation is to recover primarily to save a marriage or to not scare away our boyfriend? Rather, than to simply be a healthier person for ourselves, regardless and independent of any other factor. What if he divorced you tomorrow? Would your recovery efforts end? What if she dies? Do you suddenly no longer have any reason to be emotionally healthy? What if you never met him or her at all? Would you still not have a reason to be Emotionally healthy. See, it can't be for somebody or something. It can only be for you. Now, you know, maybe there were a lot of factors that went into uh, Larry Walter's suicide. I don't know all the details. But I do know, I do know that he was a man who believed that external things, like an achievement... The achievement of a dream was capable of bringing authentic inner contentment. And that's a false premise. That's a lie. So I don't know all of the details, but I know that detail. I know that Larry Walters was living with a foundation perception that was a false premise. It was a distorted foundation perception of life. When our motivation for recovery hinges on external things, such as the promise of a relationship or the maintaining of a relationship, this means our motivations are false and empty. Recovery, true recovery, cannot happen as long as things like this are your motivation. Only genuine inner motivation, totally regardless and independent of any external factors, is the true path to authentic recovery. So now are you beginning to see why there aren't a million cured people walking around? It's because people themselves are not willing to surrender this primary overriding, hollow, counterfeit motivation. It ain't easy, but it is a non-negotiable requirement for authentic recovery. When our sense of peace and contentment is dependent on external things, as it seems was the case in Larry Walter's case, it means such peace or so-called contentment, is empty, fake, and hollow. Achievements may make us feel great for a while, but they simply cannot last. External things cannot fill us up for any real length of time. Why not? Because as long as we cannot generate Our own from within. Any so-called contentment that we manage to get a hold of is like water in a bucket that has a huge hole in the bottom. To keep that bucket full, you have to keep finding more and more water to throw into it because the emptiness comes back quickly. Healthy people don't have holes in their buckets. They don't have to put anything in their bucket. Their buckets... Are perpetually full. So, the real moral of Larry Walters' story, as exhilarating and fun as it is, and as many angles as one can take on it, is this nothing external is the path to true emotional health and contentment. Do you know the only rich men who are genuinely content? they are only those who would be just as content if they were poor. Think about that. Maybe I shouldn't say rich men. That's not really politically correct. Maybe I should say rich people. Do you know the only rich people who are genuinely content? Well, they're just people who would be content either way. Their contentment is not dependent on their money or their circumstances. Do you know the only beautiful people who enjoy authentic contentment? Well, it's those people who would be just as content if they were ugly. In fact, you see some of these soldiers coming back from war. Not all of them, but some who proudly go out in public with their families, They do interviews on the news, and you can tell how much they adore their families and how happy they are. But their faces are completely mangled and burned. And you see a picture of them from before they went off to war, and they were incredibly attractive. And now they look like Freddy Krueger from Nightmare on Elm Street. How do they manage it? They manage it with genuine inner contentment. Their contentment was never inseparably tied into their looks. Now, here's the one that's going to sting for a lot of my listeners, especially lately, because this point has been a real obstacle for them. Do you know who the only genuinely content husbands and wives are? Now, we're talking about genuine contentment here. The only genuinely content husbands and wives are those who would be just as genuinely content if they were single. How about genuinely content boyfriends and girlfriends? Same thing. The only ones you're ever going to find are those who would be just as content if they were single. Everybody I'm describing here are people who are content because they are emotionally healthy. They're able to generate their own sense of worth, value, and contentment and peace from within. Do you know the only people who will authentically recover from borderline personality disorder or any other emotional disorder? It is those who are motivated by inner purpose totally regardless and independent of any and all external factors. This includes jobs, girlfriends, boyfriends, wives, husbands, social status, other people's opinions. In other words, any and all external factors. The only exception to this, and I mean the only exception might be those who have pleasing God as their primary motivation. And only then because he'll see and support your personal efforts. So am I saying that atheists don't have a chance? Nope. I am not implying that at all. And I'm not, I realize that I am not speaking to just one type of audience. Even people who do not believe in God can authentically recover from emotional disorder and borderline personality disorder in particular, as long as their motivation is genuine, comes from within, and is totally and utterly independent of all external factors. A genuine desire to please God, which is an external factor, is simply the only exception I can conceive of, and that's why I mention it. So there it is, folks, the true story of the lawn chair pilot. I think you're going to have fun telling that story around and seeing what other gems of insight you might pick out of it on your own along the way. Has your week been as hot as mine? Jumpin', Jehoshaphat, it was humid and sweltering out there in the woods last week. It just might be the very last time I ever plan a backpacking trip in the heat of summer, because I mean it was brutal. I always tell people there's only two things I'm truly scared of, and that's lightning and the ocean. And we can talk about the ocean another time, but lightning, because it is literally light. (laughs) Do you know what moves faster than light? Nothing does. Messages don't even move fast enough to reach your brain as fast as lightning. So what this means is, if lightning strikes you, you are literally dead before you realize you're dead. <laughs> Imagine that. A pow! And you just keep walking around for five minutes, eating your candy bar or whatever, and then suddenly it just dawns on you, wait a second, I'm dead. Plop. So that's not really the way I want to go out. And since I do so much backpacking in the wilderness, it's always something I'm trying to outsmart, that that darn lightning. But anyway, these Armageddon-like storms were following me around for most of the trip. I could hear it right over that mountain and then right over the next mountain, but it never quite seemed to catch me. In fact, one night I set camp right on, right on top of a mountain. But then one huge storm finally caught up, To me on my last day, after eight miles in the absolute most brutal humidity and heat of all time, just as I was collapsing into an area where I was going to spend the night, and there it was, hopped up on me just like a big fat tick, and I mean I just barely, barely had time to get my shelter up and get inside. So the rain come down in buckets, and I mean buckets for a long time, and I just ate a bit of supper. And passed out right there inside the tent for a while it was a floorless tent so really it was just a cover you know like a a little circus tent with no floor and when I finally woke up it was dark and it was about 11 p.m. at night and I thought well this is my last night here so there's no way I'm gonna go without a fire I grabbed my headlamp and I crawled out and managed to get my fire going despite everything being sopping wet and that was when I sat down and I recorded the opening to today's episode. I had spent the day as I was hiking those eight miles in the heat and humidity thinking about casually what I wanted to start the program out with and mostly I just figured that the noises and everything else there in the background might create some nice ambiance for my listeners and kind of make you feel like you were all there with me. So I hope you enjoyed that. Let me remind everybody, please, to visit my website full of free resources over at thelastsymptom.com. If you're able, please consider leaving me a donation while you're there to support my overall body of work, which includes this podcast. Additionally, if you're interested in a personal one-on-one conversation with me, you can schedule that right from thelastsymptom.com as well. To end today, as has become my custom, I reckoned I'd leave you all with a poem. This is Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. Beautiful poem. So much meaning packed into this poem. Uh, If you'd like to hear this poem in a very appropriate context, you can watch the movie Alien Covenant, where David... the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Ozymandias by Percy Shelley.